Good morning, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile and the tragic end of Salvador Allende's popular unity government. A time for remembrance, it is also an opportunity to explore the causes and consequences of the coup, including the role of the United States in the aftermath of this coup. President Allende's efforts to nationalize much of Chile's basic industry to create an innovative, democratic, mass consumer society were brought to an abrupt end on September 11, 1973, the other 9-11. Allende's death set off a period of executions, disappearances and torture of cruelty still almost unimaginable, but one not to be forgotten. Honoring Hispanic Heritage Month, we have produced a series of three programs remembering the Chilean events. This morning is the third, a conversation with the Philippine writer and activist and intellectual Walden Bello. Walden Bello is currently the International Adjunct Professor of Sociology at the State University of New York at Binghamton. He served in the Philippine House of Representatives from 2009-2015 and ran for Vice President in the Philippine election in 2022. He was just named Amnesty International Philippines Human Rights Defender for 2023. And uh, as an academic with a global reputation, Bello obtained his doctorate in sociology from Princeton University in the United States and his Bachelor of Arts from the Ateneo de Manila University in 1966. He is the author or co-author of 25 books on topics ranging from the political economy of the Philippines to the rise of the right globally to the brewing conflict between China and the United States. He received the Right Livelihood Award. This is known as the Alternative Nobel Prize in 2003 for his work in exposing the negative side of corporate-driven globalization and was named Outstanding Public Scholar by the International Studies Association in 2008. He has been called the world's leading no-nonsense revolutionary by renowned Canadian author Naomi Klein. Good morning, Professor Mbello. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me to your program. We're concluding this uh, series, Walden, I can call you Walden? Yes, yes, please, definitely. We're concluding this series of programs this morning. We've talked about Chile and the coup itself, so we thought we might ask you about the aftermath of the coup, both in Chile and internationally. But first, your own engagement with uh, Chile, Allende, and the popular unity government. Could you talk with us about this? Yes, I went to Chile in 1972 uh, because I was attracted by the idea that um, Allende um, and his popular unity government, or Unidad Popular, had this project of transforming Chile into a socialist society through peaceful means. 
this was the famous Via Chilena. And so I, um, I went to uh, Cuernavaca, Mexico, in, in the state of Morelos, uh, uh, you know, which was the birthplace of Emiliano Zapata, the, uh, the famous Mexican revolutionary, to learn Spanish. Uh, and after I was able to uh, have that for about three weeks, <laughs> it was a crash course, um, I flew to Chile. And um, my original idea was to, to look at the organizing being done by the progressive forces, the uh, Communist Party, the Movimiento Izquierda Revolucionaria, the MIR, uh, in the shantytowns in uh, Santiago, or the they were called Cayampas. Uh, when I got there, and I was able to survey the the situation, I what initially in, uh, I thought was you know uh, a revolutionary. Uh, momentum for the popular unity government, um, I realized that, in fact, uh, the counter-revolution had begun. This was marked by, of course, the elite and the the, the upper classes were very much under, against Allende at that point because, he, you know, he, he had this uh, project of uh, income and wealth redistribution, uh, including land reform. And they were very much uh, afraid, uh, you know, that they would be impacted negatively by this. Uh, but what uh, surprised me was that uh, the middle class in Chile was turning against the revolution. And uh, I sort of, you know, I couldn't understand why this was so, because they were supposed to be benefiting from it. Uh, along with the workers and the peasants, and um, they were not the targets of the revolution. In fact, they were seen as allies by the left, and yet they had turned against it, and they were the mass base of this counter-revolution uh, that was taking place. So when I went there, there was this struggle for the control of the streets, and the left mobilized, the right mobilized, but I began to note that, uh, in fact, the the right wing uh, was beginning to really control, you know, the the streets, and they were a, a fairly aggressive and violent mob that was beating up people on the left, which was not the case with uh, mobilizations by the left. Unidad Popular, and you know, this was these were mobilizations of peasants and workers, uh, yeah, uh, and they were fairly uh, peaceful. But the right wing uh, was uh, quite aggressive, and uh, I was nearly beaten up several times because I made the stupid mistake of carrying the Communist Party newspaper under my arm. I, I, it was totally. It was totally accidental, but when they saw that, they, yeah, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I was nearly beaten up. Fortunately, a Mexican friend of mine suddenly appeared <laughs> and saved me from a beating. But in any event, I just wanted to give you a sense of how 
the the situation then. And uh, so I decided that uh, maybe what I need to be doing uh, for my dissertation, because after all, I had gone down not only to have a political experience, uh, but to uh, have a dissertation in sociology. So instead of studying the organizing of people in the shantytown uh, by the progressive parties, I decided to uh, study the, the rise of the counter-revolution and um, did a lot of interviewing both of uh, the right, uh, which was not a very easy task since they always suspected that I was, you know, uh, as they said, that I was a Cuban agent, you know, because they couldn't figure out what a Filipino uh, with brown skin was uh, doing there. Uh, so, uh, uh, but, you know, some of them uh, agreed to talk to me. Uh, and uh, basically, um, this is when I, I realized how how much they were against in a very, very um, uh, sort of deep way against the project of socialism. I also did um, uh, interviews with people on the left and uh, they, you know, they had this, uh, almost all of them said that the middle class was just being manipulated by the right, that, uh, that it was, uh, uh, you know, their interests really lay with the workers and peasants, uh, but, you know, that their fears were being fanned by the right uh, or by the elites uh, and the landlords. To some extent, it was true, but um, I think it was incomplete because, the, the, as I said, the, the program of Allende was not, uh, was not aimed at the middle class. In fact, the middle class was supposed to benefit from it. And yet they were very, very much against it. And I think what was happening was that they felt that their interests uh, as um, would be affected negatively uh, by the rise of workers and peasants, by income redistribution, by the program of the Unidad Popular, um, that somehow the rise of workers and peasants would negatively affect them. And they seem to be quite convinced about that and very angry about it. So, so it wasn't just manipulation. Uh, they really, it, it was really a, a, a very strong reaction uh, to, to peasants and workers and uh, the indigenous minority, the Mapuches, you know, uh, you know having, you know, uh, for the first time, um, having the possibility of changing their lives and the direction of the country. So uh, when I went down to the South, to Valdivia, to look at what was happening to the relations among classes in the countryside, like the, uh, what they call the pequeños agricultores, uh, the small farmers, uh, I was just struck by how aggressively anti-Ayanda they were. Uh, and, um, I, I recounted this this one incident where uh, I went into the a small farmer's uh, home. I was welcomed uh, because I was carrying the recommendation of somebody from Princeton University who knew this farmer. And uh, they slaughtered a, a goat for me and 
we were getting along fine and dandy, but uh, he, he, after a while, he would just he would just keep on cursing the left, cursing Allende, cursing the communists, and that they were going to sacrifice small farmers like him uh, in a land reform program. You know that was not meant against them. Uh, land reform was just for the big landlords. That was that was fairly clear, and yet somehow they felt you know that. Uh, they were also going to be targeted, uh, despite the fact that the popular unity government said, no, 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 small farmers we respect. And uh, the father spent two whole days denouncing Allende, and I just, you know, we, uh, uh, we just wanted to have a good breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I kept on saying that we can talk about that later on, but after a while, I, I just uh, uh, had to tell him that uh, I think Allende was some, doing something good for people like him, that Allende was somebody that they could trust, that socialism was not going to affect them. It would affect the elites, but not them. And at that point, uh, the, the farmer basically turned very cold against us. And at that point, we, I, I realized that we had overstayed our welcome and, you know, that um, I had, I was now seen together with, with my friend who was with me, the American historian Bill Bloom. He he eventually did a lot of great studies on the CIA. Uh, and and we just had to leave because uh, you know, we were now identified with, with with the left. Now, so basically I um I just wanted to bring that up because oftentimes uh when people recount what happened in Chile they miss out on this aggressive counter-revolution on the streets that was based on the middle class. Uh, and the, the, it seems like, you know, Allende was just, you know, up against the elite in the United States, uh, which was true that, that the elite in the, the U.S. Um, were against Allende, but uh, they were successful because they had a massive middle class base, uh, and this were uh, this were really this was this was the you know the the, the middle class base the, you know this 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 constituted uh, the 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 force uh, that uh, destabilized the Unidad Popular government, and you've got to that's got to be brought in because. Otherwise, we don't understand what was happening, uh, and um, you know the middle class is is, is very um, is a very very uh, how would you put it now volatile class. You know when it's fighting for democratic rights against dictators, uh, it 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 can play a progressive role. Uh, and and we've seen that happening where middle class, where the middle class has um, has um, led in in fights against dictatorships, but in another situation where you have the lower classes, the minorities, the the workers begin to assert their rights and begin to have uh, a progressive project that means a transformation society, then the middle class uh, begins to have this very negative counter-revolutionary role. 
And uh, this is, in fact, what, what I was seeing happening in Chile at that time. And I just wanted to say that it, um, it's not only in Chile, it has happened in other places, in Italy during the Mussolini's time, in Germany during Hitler's time, uh, in Thailand, uh, you know, in against Thaksin back in the, the uh, 2000s. Uh, and uh, so um, that dimension has to really be brought in. Uh, my only other point is to say that, yes, the U.S. and the Chilean elite conspired against Allende, but they were successful because they were able to insert themselves in a mass mobilization of the middle class against the Unidad Popular government. Before you finish here, you know, uh, I'm sure North Americans are quite challenged when it comes to understanding class. Could you tell us uh, what you mean by middle class? And secondly, um, perhaps you could just give us a little bit more about Allende's socialism uh, and what, if anything, had been accomplished by 1973 or 72 when you were there. Well, in developing countries, uh, you know, what we call the middle class is uh, made up of, you know, uh, professionals. Uh, 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 we're also talking about uh, small uh, landowners. Uh, we're talking about white collar workers. Uh, and basically it's this whole strata uh, between the elites that um, have uh, control over the, the the economy and the workers and the peasants that 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 work the economy and 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 and, and the land. So so that's that's and in in developing countries like Chile, the Philippines, Mexico, uh, this is a fairly large number of 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 uh, people uh, that are neither from the elite nor are they from the workers and the peasants. Uh, they, they are sort of caught in the middle, looking upward and looking downward at the same time. So they're a very volatile class. Um, and uh, of course, in the United States, what, uh, what people understand by you know, the middle class uh, are people who are not, uh, they're understood mainly in terms of income uh they you know they're 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 they may be uh say workers but they're you know they they, they think of themselves uh not as workers but um the middle class that that they, they you know they they in terms of their income in terms of you know their their place in life uh and because you said that people are quite challenged because oftentimes although their actual work uh, is, you know, that they're being exploited by the elite. Nevertheless, they don't think of themselves as workers, uh, and and this is the case in 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 the United States, for instance. So um, that's that's the first thing that I wanted to respond to in terms of your uh, uh, question about who is the middle class. The second thing is I end this. Uh, Peaceful Road to Socialism was basically, it would be, uh, first of all, it meant that the big copper companies would be 
nationalized. They would uh, come into the hands of the state. Uh, but uh, at the same time, the big uh, firms owned by the members of the elite uh, would also pass into the hands of the state, but that uh, medium-sized and small firms would not be touched. They would basically be, uh, they, they would continue to be run as usual, but uh, you would also have reforms in the sense that uh, they would be unionized and workers would be given a voice. Uh, and um, for those firms that were not cooperating, you know, in, in terms of giving workers a greater say in, in the factory and giving them better pay, uh, that these firms would be subjected to either permanent or temporary takeover by the state. But there were all the laws, you know, there were uh, uh, laws already existing, um, both in the constitution and in, 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 in the legal code of Chile that allowed for intervention by government uh, in, in the firms, in, in, uh, in private enterprises. But the small and medium enterprises were not the targets uh, of, of the socialist takeover. And then, of course, in the countryside, it was mainly the big, big landlords, the big um, latifundias. Uh, these were the targets of land reform, not the small farmers, like the person in Valdivia that I talked about. Um, so, so it was um, it was going to socialism through constitutional means. Uh, it was just. Uh, negatively affecting, you know, the upper classes and the big landowners um, and small and medium enterprises were not targeted for takeover, but they were seen as cooperating in the the transformation of Chile, and it was nonviolent because all of the mechanisms that were being used by the government. Um, were constitutional and they were in the law. So that's why uh, Allende was fairly confident that we have, as he said it, we have the mechanisms uh, already in the law which can move us to socialism. We do not need violence. Uh, we don't need some sort of a Bolshevik revolution. Uh, and Chileans do it peacefully. We are... Uh, uh, have all have been a long time democratic state, and we can transform society through democratic means. That was what Allende and the Unidad Popular really thought, and they were committed to that. But the other side uh, did not see it that way, and it was the other side that broke the rules. And uh, when they felt that uh, the they were going to be to be expropriated, then they they broke the rules and went for violent resistance to the aims of the popular unity government. Thank you so much for that. I want to reintroduce you to our listeners. Uh, everybody, please uh, here you're listening to KZYX. This is a community and listener supported radio station here in Mendocino County. 
and you are listening to myself, Loreto Rojas, and my, my co-host, Carl Winslow. And you just heard uh, Walden Bello. He is a political activist as well as a writer. And over the last 50 years, Walden authored hundreds of studies and articles that have come out in many publications, including the New York Times, The Guardian, Bangkok Post, Le Monde, Le Monde Diplomatique, and more. And we are talking about uh, the other September, the other 9-11, this one in 1973, the coup d'etat in Chile, a seminal event in the history of the Americas, all too often forgotten. And uh, I want to thank Walden for being with us today, because you really have explained something that for years in Chile we have discussed, that... Uh, the most visible actors in the coup were actually the army. Uh, but in reality, in Chile, we always say that it was a civil military coup because of what you just have explained. And this polarity that we so often see in so many places because Chile continued being hugely divided by this idea of... Um, who is in charge and who is going to get the benefits of the government. And um, we all know what happened on September 11 when President Allende was killed at the palace. The palace was almost demolished and destroyed. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about the time that comes after that. Um, the military junta was um, 17 years in, in possession of the country. And uh, they implemented quite radical different programs that really wiped out not only the constitution. So all the laws that you were referring that agenda was solidly hoping or uh, solely so that he thought that they would be enough for the reforms that he wanted to implement it were destroyed. So could you talk about what happened when actually the junta was in charge and what were the the programs and what did they do that makes Chile such an emblematic example of the changes in the region in the 80s, in the 70s, late 70s, 80s and 90s? And even now, because those um, decisions have continue affected the country. Well, uh, well, uh, the economic transformation of Chile was led by uh, what are now uh, notoriously called the Chicago Boys. And these were um, people uh, who had been educated in the uh, University of Chicago economics department. And, and they were fairly doctrinaire. Uh, they, they thought that you know, the state was too big in Chile that uh, it had such a massive role in the economy. And they felt that uh, uh, in order for Chile to be a vigorous economy, they had to cut down the role of the state. They had to uh, let, as they said, let the market reign. Uh, so um, all those, uh, all those uh, regulations all those institutions uh, that um, controlled, you know, the 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 market, and um, uh, all of those were um, taken uh, taken out. Uh, 
they you know were rendered impassive uh so the 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 whole thing uh was the state protections of uh, citizens as economic citizens those were um cut down ba uh, banished and uh, unionization for instance no you know labor unions were uh, banned you know government support for uh, pensions for instance um, the you know uh, that the, you know the pension system, which was government controlled, um, was transformed into sort of a private pension system, uh, which was very 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 unstable. Uh, so what we had uh, and land reform was stopped, um, and definitely employers or you know the the you know the big monopolists uh, were were in complete control. Uh, because uh, unions were were banned, or if they were allowed, they were just sort of formally recognized, but actually with very little power. So um, what we uh, saw was the you know the government protections uh, of uh, people, of of workers, uh, of of peasants, of even the middle class. Um, the, you know, those were taken away. And it was the rule uh, of capital, uh, unrestrained. And this was, um, this was the sort of vision of the people at the University of Chicago. And they imparted this to the Chilean graduate students who then imparted this to the people in, in Chile um, uh, it, itself, the Chileans who were studying economics. Uh, the uh, Universidad Católica de Chile played a very, very important role in this economic uh, transformation. So what happened was um, basically the living standards, and not only of the workers and peasants, but of the middle class itself, took a big dive. Uh, so the people on the streets who were oust, who were participating in ousting Allende, uh, thinking that you know they they would benefit with this ouster actually suffered a great deal because um you know because of this this economic right wing economic transformation that was uh, taking place so the only ones who really benefited from the chicago boys uh, were were a small uh, group within the upper class in chile um and uh, industry was um uh, chile, chile used to have a very important um, industrial structure, uh, which had been built through the uh, what is called import substitution industrialization. Uh, the industrial structure in Chile was 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 completely transformed. Uh, you know, so that what happened was that the Chicago boys uh, focused on what they called export oriented agriculture. Uh, so basically, they they from um, an economy that was built on uh, supplying the domestic market, uh, and you know, with with the domestic market as you know, sort of uh, you know, um, 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 protected uh, to some degree from competition from exports, 
um, what happened was that boom, they just brought down the tariff rates uh, to about four to five percent, which was radical. You know, you, you just don't do that. And so um, goods came into Chile uh, from outside transnational uh, corporations uh, and destroyed the industries, the, the, the old industries in Chile. And what instead happened was that they focused on, on agriculture like uh, wine uh, and fruits uh, in export to the United States uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, so um, what we had was a complete transformation uh, of the economy from one that was focused on, uh, on, on supplying domestic demand uh, meeting domestic demand um, and become a, a completely export-oriented economy, completely export-oriented economy. Uh, and uh, so uh, Chile had, um, it, it was an experiment in what they call neoliberalism. And what happened in Chile was then followed by a number of other countries, including the Philippines, including my own country, um, because the... Uh, I'm sorry. What I what in Chile, they, they, the tariff rates came down to 11 percent. Um, that uh, uh, the 10 to 11 percent. That's you know that that uh, of 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 uh, tariffs would just be 10, 11 to 10 percent of of value. Uh, but some countries like the Philippines said, well, if the Chileans can bring down their tariff rates to just uh, 11 percent of the value, then we in the Philippines we can bring it down to five percent. So what happened was that in, in places like the Philippines that copied the Chilean model, manufacturing was wiped out. You know, so we 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 had a, a transformation uh, because of the same policies. We also saw the wiping out of manufacturing, the wiping out of industry, and um, and to the point that uh, in the Philippines after you know. Uh, 20, 25 years, um, you know, uh, agriculture was devastated, um, uh, industry was devastated, and the only way that you could get a decent job was by going abroad to, to you know, uh, to, to, to the United States and to Europe or whatever. Uh, but in other words, the Ch Chilean example really served as a model for the deindustrialization uh, of so many countries, uh, and um, with the same social effects, which meant that basically people lost their jobs that had been uh, fairly good and secure jobs, and they were exposed to having to uh, adjust to a new economy where jobs were scarce, were unstable, and low paid. So that's that's essentially um, uh, what happened in in Chile was repeated in places like the Philippines. Alden, I think uh, I'm I can speak for both of us in saying that we understand your argument and the importance of the argument that you're making. But let me just ask you if you wouldn't mind stepping back just a minute. Uh, we are here in North America. There is the story of the the CIA and the copper bosses and so forth. Could you say, given what you've already said, could you say uh, something 
about um, the influence of American capital, the CIA, and the State Department? Well, definitely, I think Nixon and Kissinger didn't like what was happening in Chile. Uh, and uh, they authorized uh, destabilization moves against the government, and they supported the the you know the, the trucker strike, um, and you know they supported those parts of the military that uh, did not want to um, to um, um, that did not want to violate the what was the uh, military uh, tradition of non-intervention in politics in Chile. Uh, yes, uh, de definitely. They did not want to see um, uh, Chile go socialist um, because they felt that one Cuba is enough. Okay, and then, <laughs> uh, and then if you have uh, Chile going socialist too, then that would that would be a, a sort of uh, um, an example to the rest of Latin America uh, about. The, you know that uh, you know that would that that could be very difficult to contain. So, but uh, at the same time, I think we should realize that without a local base, uh, without a mass base, uh, the United States uh, efforts to destabilize would not have been that effective. Uh, in fact, the you know. Uh, the the you know the they could only be effective because you had this mass base against Allende uh, that I that was the middle class and so basically what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, if you just focus on external intervention you're not going to get very far in explaining what happened okay. Uh, uh, you you have to see this as a combination of external and internal uh, um, forces, uh, with the priority being the internal forces, uh, in in my view. And as I said, um, uh, if you were in Chile at that time, uh, uh, and you saw the fight over the streets, and you saw how the middle class. Uh, mobilized itself uh, against the popular unity government, against workers. Um, uh, so it was, you know, this was, uh, I, I think what would be much more appropriate as an, as an image was what happened in Italy with the, the fascists uh, and what happened in Germany, because both the fascists in Germany and the Nazis um, um, basically um, got their support from the middle classes. Okay, so, so um, I guess what I'm trying to say is yes, there was U.S. intervention, but it would not have been effective had it not been reliant on this uh, middle class that basically fought the left on the streets and was able to get command of the streets. And then what happened? Was you know that this was the uh, united right, Beracha <laughs> Unida, uh, that then called for the military to intervene. Okay, so so we've got to we've got to bring that uh, we've got to bring uh, 
that dimension into the equation because unless we bring it into the equation, we won't get very far in understanding uh, uh, what happened. So that's that's also what led me to to uh, to my studies on on the middle class, uh, not only in in developing countries but in, in in the United States and in Europe. What what we are seeing right now uh, is, uh, for instance. Uh, you know, in 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 the states uh, and in in Europe, um, you pretty much um, have uh, a people who traditionally uh, voted democratic or social democratic because of uh, uh, fears of immigration uh, or uh, or racism um, are the mass base right now of of the right. You know, so. So the, the, what's happening right now in Europe and the United States is precisely a lot of it we can begin to understand if we look at what happened in places like Chile and the role that the middle classes played in the counter uh, revolution. So, uh, you know, this is, this is important to be able to lay out the whole picture so that we don't fall for easy explanations because if we if we just have very easy explanations, oh, it was just external intervention, it's going to be very difficult to understand it when it comes to our own societies. You know, this mm. is, this is uh, and mm. I, I think, at, you know, what's happened over the last at, uh, 15 years in Europe and the United States and the way that, you know, you now have uh, the right wing based, you know, uh, getting a lot of popular support that you know uh, that is exactly uh, what happened in chile it's not just the elites manipulating things uh it's it's uh, uh, the creation of a base that represses the poor that represses you know the workers and a very active and angry base that uh that we we're beginning to see that in the so-called global north uh, the face of reaction at this point is the face of those people that beat up immigrants, the people who support Meloni in 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 Italy, the people who support the National Front uh, Front in France. Uh, you know, these are many of these people are from from the middle classes. Uh, so it's it's we we need to um, be more cognizant of these class realities. Uh, in order to be uh, to, to be able to understand um, what's happening in our societies at this point, I want to remind you that you are listening to KCYX, and um, my name is Loreto Rojas. I'm here with Carl Winslow. We are dedicating our Hispanic Heritage series to remember the coup d'état in Chile um, in 1973, the other 9/11. And we are talking with Walden Velo, activist and author. He also served at the in the Philippine House of Representatives from 2009-2015. And he was just named Amnesty International Philippines Human Rights Defender this year. He has been called the world's leading non-nonsense revolutionary, but Naomi Klein. We are very happy to talk to you today. Um well, then, thank you so much for explaining uh, so clearly what happened in Chile and how 
the changes were um, happening because of this uh, middle class, which, by the way, 50 years later or even 30 years after the coup, uh, the middle class is totally impoverished in Chile. Nevertheless, continues having this feeling of being middle class, which continues yes. dividing the country. But I know yes. Carl has a question for you, so. Mm -hmm. um, well, um, this is uh, not to belabor the point, but um, um, one other question about our Chicago boys. Um, uh, our uh, former Secretary of State, uh, who was the Dean of the University of Chicago School of Business, actually said in 2020 uh, that the coup produced um, only very, uh, only a very good economy in Latin America in the 1980s. It was sensational. Uh, eliding the uh, horrors of the history and maybe um, given the, all the mythology about uh, the United States and our foreign policy, maybe you could say just a word about how uh, someone like that could talk about the results in, in Chile as being sensational. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the uh, if you look at the inequality in Latin America, um, Chile is one of the highest in terms of rates of inequality. Um, and um, if there's been, you know, the, you know, the protest movements in Chile over the last, you know, several years, uh, have been protests against inequality, which is one of the worst in Latin America. So, it you know, if you look at um, if you look at the criterion of did it achieve a more equal society, it it did the opposite. The Chicago Boys produced a very unequal society in terms of the structure of the economy. What used to be an economy that you know that that. Um, that was geared towards manufacturing, okay, uh, that's been destroyed. Uh, now you have basically an economy that's based on the export of fruits, the export of wine, uh, and and uh, and uh, you know it's a very fragile economy, precisely because it has lost its manufacturing base. Um, uh, and you know, people in the United States can relate to that because you know the U.S. has also begun to lose its manufacturing base because of the same policies, you know, of um, you know of uh, encouraging capital to go wherever it wants, you know. And so, what happened is that capital went to China, uh, and there's been deindustrialization that's occurred in the United States. So, basically, the same sort of thinking that let capital do what it wants, go where it wants, even if it means the industrialization. That happened in Chile, that's also happened in 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 the United States. So this myth, you know, that Chile has be, was sensational, um, that's I, I think a real, real myth, uh, uh, given the fact that 
uh, Chile is top uh, in terms of inequality in the Americas uh, at this point in time. And, you know, you know, how can you call a country that has lost its manufacturing base a miracle? You know, so it's, 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 um, uh, it's, 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 it's an illusion that these people are seeing. Thank you, Walden. Um, so in interesting when, um, when the government of Michelle Bachelet, they were talking about that Chile was the most successful country in the region in the, in the 2000s. And uh, that created an incredible influx of people from other countries that believe this macroeconomic in, um, data that the monetary, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were providing and showing Chile as, as an example. And now Chile, as uh, you may know, uh, it's a destination from people from Venezuela or Haiti, uh, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, to find shelter, thinking that this is the place where actually they could um, mm -hmm. live better. And uh, they find this reality, which is quite shocking, in both ways, ones that is an incredible racist country against the foreigners. Chileans are very nationalist. I always describe it be, perhaps because we live in such a geographically isolated. But uh, secondly, also it um, shows more and more the poverty that um, is encountered not only there, but in many places where there is almost no place where to go right? People are trying to escape their countries in hopes that elsewhere there will be some kind of opportunities to develop, but that's not, that's not possible almost anywhere. Is that right? I mean, this, the, and, and then in Chile in 2012, 14, 16, big demonstrations against the government, uh, the students were able to gain free access to university. And in 2019, there was the estallido social, you know, the social uprising, which almost paralyzed the country. Nevertheless, that is still not being possible to uh, change the ways of this country. So we have only literally three minutes left. Okay. Then, but I wanted to ask you about, uh, and, and I know this is a... Um, this is a, a difficult question, but neoliberalism really is not doing the work that the people need. How how do you foresee the changes that are needed? Are there any changes that are happening now or we are really veering more and more to the right? Well, I, I think that the lesson of the last, uh, um, um, especially since 2008, 2000 and nine with the global economic crisis uh, is you know that neoliberalism as uh, uh, as a philosophy uh, or an approach that would bring about um, um, a better life uh, that would um, lead to greater equality that would lead to a more vigorous economy that it has not fulfilled this uh, so, uh, so, but what happens is that um, although it's 
the results have been, uh, you know, great inequalities, uh, economic stagnation, um, deindustrialization. Uh, still, the problem is that many of the economists and the technocrats know no better, and that the only tools they have or are familiar with our neoliberal tools. So, so they keep on applying the same uh, approaches and it doesn't work. Uh, you know, so, but, so this is, this is the default, what we call the default mode when you talk about economics is neoliberal uh, policies. Um, and um, so we're now in the situation whereby neoliberalism no longer works, but the policies in place are still neoliberal. Uh, and an alternative, uh, you know, is, is, you know, is still, you know, people are still searching for alternatives. Um, people don't want to go back to what they, you know, see as the old line socialism, uh, you know, where you had, you know, state control, of, you know, of the economy and that had its own problems. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, I, I think that some sort of socialist orientation is very important. You know, that capital um, uh, uh, has, capitalism has to be controlled. Um, uh, and um, the state and civil society have to uh, act in a more, much more vigorous way uh, in order to bring about redistribution of power, uh, redistribution of wealth. Uh, so um, uh, now whether you call that socialist or you call that social democratic, uh, I, I think that points the way. Uh, because if you leave it, you know, a situation right now uh, where you continue to just have this kind of... <laughs> capitalism that doesn't work. We are totally out of time okay, now. So I'm, we appreciate the conversation. And um, <coughs> so I want to thank you today to our guests, Walden Bello, and to Marty at the radio station for her help. And to all of you listeners, thank you so much for listening today. This is Loreto Rojas. And Cal Winslow, and thank you very much, uh, Walden. It's been a pleasure and very informative, and I'm sure it will be widely discussed. Thank you. Until next time, everybody.